It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Anthony Daniel. Thanks for joining us today. And my guest is someone we've had on before. Uh, Renewables International is a German-based website interested in all things Ergen Vender, the uh, German energy transition. The editor of Renewables International is Craig Morris and he joins us from Freiburg in Germany. G'day, Craig. Hello. Great to have you back on the show. Uh, I think the last time we had you, you uh, you quite kindly put, put the interview onto Twitter and we broke all our records on listenership. So uh, let's see if we get anywhere close to that again. Um, I, 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 I think it was more to do with your following than ours. Let's just say that. Oh, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that big of a following. So uh. it, it is interesting with these little niches on the internet, isn't it? That uh, you, yeah. you can be, a, you can be a, a bit of a star just within your own little uh, niche. Yeah, that's true. So let's expand on that a little bit before we start. We always like to get, find out a bit more about our guests. Uh, you are, a, a, of course, a, a, an American citizen, but have lived in Germany for some time. What got you there and what keeps you there? Oh, well, I, I've been over here for so long. It's uh, actually unrelated. I, was, I came over as a graduate student, but I ended up staying in Freiburg at a time when it was very much uh, the center of uh, or a center of solar activity in Germany. And Germany was a center of solar activity worldwide. This was in the late 90s. A lot has changed since. Uh, Germany has really lost its solar sector, but I have established myself in the meantime as an explainer of what's going on over here in Germany for the world in English, because the Germans, they're able to tell you what they're doing, but they don't always know what information the outside world is lacking to sort of understand why certain questions might not even be the right ones to ask. And that's kind of where I fell into this role after Fukushima. So I've been doing it uh, full time since about 2011. But even before that, since around 2002, I've been trying to explain to the world what Germany's doing. So it's been about 15 years, I guess. It is an interesting one because there is this coterie of like these English-speaking democracies that where there is a lot of back and forth on on best practices and and government policy, and the, the I guess the European even advanced European countries because of that that gap they may know a lot about what's going on in English-speaking countries because their English skills are very good, but the opposite isn't always true. Right, and I mean, really, there's the, there's two things that you know. To just to give you examples, there are two things that that I would say are are sort of misunderstood. Uh, one of them is that in Denmark and Germany, those are the, really the the two big exceptions. This uh, transition is really um, about energy democracy, and that's not even a term that a lot of people understand or associate with the transition. And so it it really involves a lot more citizen input a lot more competition between large and small companies um, and you don't have that a lot in, in, for instance, the United States and the UK. I can't really say what's going on in Australia, unfortunately. 
I'd say it'd be a very, very, a very, very similar situation. I'd say it'd be a very similar situation. I don't think uh, democracy really makes it into the energy debate. I don't think I hear that word very often. Um, right, and, and that and that brings you. I was going to say one other thing. That brings that brings us to the second point, which is that it's often focused on technical issues, and and one of those is storage. What's Germany going to do with storage? And actually, the sto- the need for storage is probably not going to come up for the next ten or fifteen years. What we need to figure out first is how to is early retirement. How do you get rid of plants, conventional plants that are working fine, you know, technically, but they need to be um, shut down or run at lower capacity uh, in order to make space for for renewables. And that's a financial issue, not a technical issue. It's not something that we need to solve with new technology. So these are the kind of questions that really need to be asked before we before we even talk about, uh, you know, what does Germany do with, for power storage? Yes, fair enough. I'm sure we'll go into all of those topics in a lot more detail as we go through the interview. I, I spoke earlier and I used the term Erdgenwende, which I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing correctly, but it's a term that's been described in, in Germany, has been used to describe this energy transition from a predominantly fossil fuel economy to a renewable powered economy. Can you go in, into a bit of detail on the history of that and uh, how supported it is uh, uh, across the political spectrum? Right. Well, the, the big thing to understand here is that this is arguably a grassroots bottom-up movement that the government has sort of jumped onto. They've jumped on the bandwagon. It's not the other way around. So the question of how did the government get the public to support this is, is just putting the cart in front of the horse. All of this starts off in the 1970s with protests against a nuclear power plant, but it wasn't. the concern was not about radioactivity. It could have theoretically been protests against a coal plant if that's what the government had planned. What the people back then, if you go back and look at the documents as I have, what they were concerned about was the industrialization of a prosperous farming community, a rural area. And so it wasn't just that a new power plant was going to be built. It was that industry was going to come in as buyers of this electricity. And a total of four nuclear plants were eventually planned. They were just going to start with one. So what the people rebelled against was this idea that the government could make such decisions without even asking people. What happened was a movement started where at the actual protests that took place, the people would yell at the police and say, you know, what, what side are you on? And the police would, would answer back, well, what do you want to replace the nuclear power with? And so people began to investigate that. And uh, under the noses of uh, the companies that should have been developing wind power, such as the aerospace firms, you know, in the U.S., we gave large R&D contracts to entities like Boeing, for instance, uh, figuring that probably wind turbines had something to do with aerodynamics, so maybe Boeing could figure it out. But in fact, Boeing did not. They did develop a couple of things, but basically these things didn't work, and it was small tinkerers, sort of garage band, uh, garage operations uh, that came up and actually made small turbines first, uh, figured out what didn't work, fixed it, and then went one step higher. And this happened during the 1980s. And by the 1990s, when Germany passed a law saying that these people have a right to connect to the grid and sell their power back to the grid, by that time, we had turbines of a relatively large size, a couple of hundred kilowatts. 
And so that was a very important timing because suddenly we were able to go from maybe 300 kilowatts by the end of the decade up to a couple of uh, megawatts, which is what we have today. So within those 10 years, these small firms were able to make that transition under the noses of the big uh, companies with R&D budgets. And then in the, in the 2000s, the big companies that we now associate with wind power like GE uh, and Siemens, they actually bought up some of these startups whose names are largely forgotten, companies like Bonus, for instance. They were bought up by uh, some of these bigger firms that we now associate with wind power. But all of this comes from this grassroots movement. And in fact, the largest wind turbine manufacturer in Germany today is Enercon, which comes out of this grassroots movement. It started off with, you know, I think two people in the mid-80s or something. And they, they are still around and haven't been taken over. You have a similar push in PV. What happened with PV was not so much R&D, but deployment. So it was people who went out and decided we need to build up a large demand for this so that we will have the production lines and get the economies of scale. And so, for instance, just to give you one example, in the 1990s and the mid-90s when this technology, I mean, PV was super expensive at the time. The people of Freiburg uh, decided when they were expanding the football stadium, okay, something totally unrelated. The football stadium was to be expanded, and they decided to p put a solar roof on it. And to get season tickets, because they were oversubscribed, they decided to have a campaign. If you bought a solar panel on this roof, if you funded it, then you would be bumped up in line for season tickets. And that was the kind of thing, uh, you know, people from all directions, all walks of life were, were coming up with ways to push demand for PV. And that's why we have the big production lines today. That, that is an amazing history. And uh, of course, there's been plenty of uh, innovation on the uh, policy front as well. well. As you said, probably once uh, politicians did get interested in, in, in the whole process, things like feed-in tariffs with PV, of course, have, have been a big hit and have been uh, the, the, the template of, that have been used right across the world. Germany is at the forefront of so much of this stuff, and uh, you you obviously write from there, and you write on a regular basis on on the on the website. And I wanted to spend most of the time in this interview to discuss some of the things you've been talking about. And in August, you reported on the the German electricity outages uh, outages, I should say, hitting uh, all time lows in 2014. All the while, of course, the the proportion of renewable energy being produced in in the grid is 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 greater than ever. So. That does fly in the face of people saying that, that, that renewable energy isn't as reliable as, as fossil fuel energy. How did it get so low and, and how does it compare to the rest of the world? Well, how does it compare to the rest of the world? I mean, uh, for I think most other countries um, have far more outages uh, than Germany does. It's actually Germany and Denmark, uh, strangely enough, that have the lowest minutes of outage in, uh, in the EU. It's reached 12 minutes in 2014 in Germany. So 12 minutes a year of power outages. There was another statistic showing that the average household or, or business experienced one power outage every four years in Germany. Honestly, from my experience, that, sound, that number sounds far too high. I would say that I can remember one power outage in the last 15 years. So how it compares to other countries, uh, I think France is up at around 50 minutes. In the U.S., it's, it, it, it varies widely. It's, you know, the United States is a very different country. It has, has cities like New York and then places like North Dakota in the middle of nowhere. And so, you know, we have anywhere between just under 100 minutes 
uh, of of downtime in parts of the U.S. up to several hundred minutes of downtime. So you could say, in general, that Americans suffer the number of minutes of downtime per month that the Germans have to put up with in a year. So it's maybe 10 or 12 times that much. But I wouldn't say that this has to do with renewables, okay? Uh, I want to make this point clear. We don't want to over-exaggerate. Adding wind and solar to the grid is not going to stabilize the system. What's actually happening, I, I guess the furthest you could go is you could say adding wind and solar doesn't bring the system down, okay? Now, we have clear evidence of that with Denmark and Germany. But what Denmark and Germany are doing to make the grid so resilient is not really related to renewables. It is other things uh, like very good grid management. They're also putting a lot of cables underground, which um, you know protects them from the elements and, and generally makes them run more reliably. In fact, that is what the official, there's an organization called the CEER, and they sort of uh, manage the grids in Europe. And, and they actually produced a study a year or two ago where they showed a correlation between underground power lines and uh, the reliability of the grid. So that is actually the connection. The furthest you can go with renewables is to say that adding wind and solar to the extent that Denmark and Germany have done does not lead to power outages. So Germany's at something like just under 20% wind and solar, and Denmark is mostly wind and little solar, but they're up at about 40%. Is it a function also of the fact that it is a more distributed grid that um, you, you don't have those point failures and renewables aren't so much, it isn't so much the, the fact that they are renewable, but the very fact that they are spread over, you know, much smaller installations that, you know, can't, can't be taken out with, uh, you know, one failure? There may be something to that, but I, honestly, um, I, th I would hesitate to say that without having seen a real investigation on it, uh, an actual engineering investigation on it. I mean, for Denmark, I think the country's pretty much flooded with, with, with wind. Uh, they actually have situations where they have more than 100% wind power. I think the peak was 138%. And so comparing the Danish and the German grid kind of doesn't make sense because, for instance, the interconnections. Denmark has interconnections with other countries that exceed or are or, or roughly in line with peak power demand. Okay, so whenever you have peak power demand in Denmark, you have the ability to import 100% of that, okay, or export when you have 140% wind power, for instance. Now, the situation is much different in Germany, which is a, a huge country. You know, we've got 5.5 million Danes, I think, and it's connected to probably six countries around it. The Germans are 80 million people, and they've only got interconnections equivalent to about 15%. Of, uh, of peak power demand. And so the Germans really have to fix their problems internally. Everyone is planning to add more interconnections, but I would think that even comparing Denmark and Germany in terms of you know where, what is placed where, those are probably two extremes and shouldn't be thrown in the same basket. Sure. We're on the Beyond Zero show and we're speaking to Craig Morris from Renewables International. Um, of course, one, one thing critics touch on, of course, is that the lack of dispatchability of, of renewables that, that is going to become a bigger concern for reliability as the proportion of, uh, of renewables increase. What are you seeing happening as this proportion increases? Are, are those kinds of tipping points being uh, approached in any evidence that you can see? 
Absolutely. If you take a look at, there's a wonderful website called energycharts.de, and I think it's energy-charts.de. This is a website that visualizes uh, power flows in Germany. And one of the things that it does is, is shows power trading. What you can see already is when there are ramps, especially with solar at midday, if, if solar kicks in very suddenly and disappears very, very suddenly in, in the late afternoon, what you have is an effect on power trading. So power plants are not able to ramp up as quickly as they are able to ramp down. Ramping down is fairly easy. So what we do in Germany is you'll actually see the power import situation change very briefly during these phases where solar ramps up and down. So Germany might be exporting quite a bit of power when solar peaks, only to start suddenly importing, or at least you'll see the exports go down as solar disappears. And then when solar is gone and, and power demand peaks in the evening, Germany will once again become an exporter. Okay, hmm. uh, And what's happening there is the conventional plants are switching on and ramping up, but they just need a little bit of assistance for that hour. And so you'll see the export situation change around there. So a lot of people are talking about, of course, uh, regarding the, the this 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 uh, these gaps between the supply and demand. Do they see, of course, advent of storage as being that the thing that is going to be that that silver bullet that is going to to fix that up? The uh, the German industry minister recently announced a discontinuation of some of the support that had been put in place for storage. Can you comment a bit on on why that that uh, change was made? Yeah, why was that change made? Uh, I, I don't exactly know what the government. I don't remember if the government gave any particular reason. Um, I mean, what I wrote about it is that this is fine because um, residential uh, pow solar power storage is, is the wrong focus anyway. And this is a trend that's going to happen on its own because there's a business case for this, and that is high retail power rates. And so if the Germans are paying something close to 30 cents for electricity and solar power from your roof is going to cost less than 12 cents from a new array, You've got a space of 18 cents to finance power storage, and the prices are, are plummeting for these kind of systems, and by the end of the decade, we will be in a different world for solar power plus storage for the, for the cost. So we're going to have this market anyway. We don't need to incentivize it. And my problem with this policy is that, or with this policy support that has now been done away with, is that this is the wrong focus anyway. We should not be in, thinking about storing any particular kind of electricity and certainly not solar. I mean, why store just solar? What we need to look at is what the grid needs. And that will be a mixture of whatever is generating at the time. So you might be storing 13% nuclear and 18% coal and whatever, right? And some wind and some biomass and some solar. Whatever's on the grid at that point, because what we actually need to focus on is, as I was talking about, giving these power plants, these dispatchable plants, a little bit of a buffer so that they have time to ramp up and down so that we don't end up with power outages. And that's not what we're going to do with uh, you know, distributed storage of solar power, which focuses on allowing people to go off the grid. That's just a different focus, and we don't need that. Yeah, so like at, at some point they thought, okay, this all of this solar is creating a, a bubble of supply, if you like. So that's where they probably thought the focus should be on 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 storage in order to maybe reduce that demand. But the reality is that energy is going to come from anywhere, and demand's going to, to to fluctuate. So you're better off having a much more generic approach, aren't you? And saying, well, 
all energy that's on the grid needs to be have the capacity to be stored in order for us to be able to smooth out the, the demand and supply. Right. I mean, uh, just having grid-attached storage, it might not be a small system. It might be a container-sized, you know, truck-sized system that will quickly dispatch large amounts of electricity or relatively large amounts. That's the kind of thing that you need. You, you put these things on, you know, it'll be stationary systems. You put them at a grid node, and the cost per kilowatt hour will, will be lower. There are just so many benefits of focusing on what the grid needs and using large uh, units for this. And you're absolutely right. Otherwise, if you if you go back to the beginning when this policy to support solar storage was was initiated, that was what people were saying is they want to smooth out the inflow of solar power from the grid. But what we have discovered, you know, four years later, five years later, is that if everybody fills up their batteries in the morning, uh, you end up dumping solar on the grid at around noontime, everyone at once, and so you you end up with an even steeper cliff every day. So you would have to even control these solar powers storage units in households with some kind of signal from the grid and completely forget about optimizing your own you know, consumption of power storage, uh, of solar power production, which is what the initial focus was. Right. Um, I wanted to move on and speak about something you wrote about this week regarding where we're going with, with our targets and uh, the, the Fraunhofer Institute for Solar Solar Energy, who I think you, you cite quite a bit in, in your writing because they are obviously a, a, a research firm organization in Germany, which does a lot of great work and we've had on, on the show a number of times. They recently calculated the, the cost of this energy transition in Germany and said that while 80%, which is the goal by, by, by 2050, is eminently doable and affordable, that getting to 100% would, uh, would, would be very difficult and very expensive. Where is that gap right now? Why is that last 20% so difficult? Well, just to, to be fair, they, they didn't investigate 100%. They investigated 95% in terms of a carbon reduction. So they were investigating what, because Germany has a, a, a sort of target corridor of 80 to 95% CO2 reduction. By 2050. And so they investigated that range. And what they found, they didn't actually calculate the cost of 80 and 95%. They calculated the cost of 85%, which is in the middle. And then they showed a range of different installation numbers, like how much of what would we need to build between 80 and 95%. And there you could see that by the time we get to 95% carbon reductions, you will need to build twice as much wind and solar and, and, and all the rest as you would need to be at 80%. And you can sort of surmise that whatever the cost of 80% was or would be, 95% is going to be something like twice as expensive. And essentially, this is not a revolutionary finding. Uh, this is something that engineers understand and, and economists understand as the Pareto effect. I think that's how you pronounce it. It basically states that one-fifth of the causes are responsible for four-fifths of the uh, results. And so this closing this gap of the last fifth should, by this general economic rule, add 80% of the cost. That's basically the long and short of it. So this is something that is known throughout economics, and it's actually also known in engineering. So getting that last 20% out of you know the theoretical efficiency really breaks the budget. And so moving towards 100% renewables is something that might be theoretically possible, but it 
requires so much more storage. We're going to lose so much renewable electricity because we will overproduce at times. And, you know, you will have to switch to hydrogen, green hydrogen, which um, a lot of people want to do. It is a, a theoretical option, uh, especially, you know, in terms of renewable aviation, for instance, you know, so all of our planes will run on green hydrogen produced from excess electricity. But if you look at the economics of it, green hydrogen is going to be expensive and it will remain expensive just because of the losses that are involved. Yeah. So, I mean, amongst, of course, uh, activist circles, 100%. Renewables is, is is a great slogan, and it's a way for for us to to get excited about it. But if if the goal is an eighty percent, you know, to, to get to an eighty percent reduction, and to get to you know, say say if if we just for now we we, we get that this this equivalent of eighty percent reduction in emissions being an eighty percent renewable target. If you take that, does that really change our posture and our approach to how we do an energy transition? If we say we're going to get to 80% within 20, 30 years, than if we were to say 100%. What is that? Would any decisions be different? What would be practically different here in 2015 if we made those, those separate different goals besides the, 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 right. the, the idea of saying we're going to get to 100%? I'm so glad you asked that question because the answer is for probably the next 15 or 20 years, no. There is no difference. So we don't have to decide today whether you know, we have to stop at 80% or if we can go for 100%. That is a decision that we can always make later. The decisions that we have to make now are, you know, for instance, we have to decide right now, no more coal plants. Uh, we cannot build any more coal plants, period, because the anything that we start building today will be finished in 2020 or something like that, and it will only be 30 years old in 2050, and we have got to take these things out. What we will need if we have 20% conventional electricity by 2050, that will have to be very quickly reacting gas turbines. If we can get coal plants to run that quickly and ramp up and down that quickly, then fine, but we won't won't need more of them, okay? And so the decisions that we will have to make, that we need to start making for the next 10 years, the first step is focusing on early retirement of existing capacity and how do you finance lower capacity factors for the remaining fleet. So gas turbines will not run for 6,000 hours a year, or let's say two-thirds of the time. They will run for 3,000 hours a year, so one-third of the time. How do you pay for that? Do they need special compensation? It depends on the country, so the situation will be different in New Zealand than it is in Germany and, and the United States. And then after we have figured that out, we need to focus on storage, but that needs to be the order. And maybe by the 2030s, when we've got storage figured out and we know what the cost impact of power to gas is, which is green hydrogen, that's another way of saying that, then we can take a hard look at, okay, are we talking about 100% renewables or are we talking about 85 or 80? And what, where does that put us for carbon emissions? What is the devastation that's happening to the planet at that point? We should have a better understanding of climate change actually looks like. And we may at that point be willing to say, you know what, the cost of climate change is so horrendous. Let's go for 100%, even if this is going to be much more expensive than 85% renewables, because it's all going to be much, much cheaper than four degrees of warming. Right. Well, that's a, that's a great place to leave it. And thank you very much for joining us today, Craig. All right. Glad to be here. Just to uh, get everybody on board, uh, can you give us the URL of the Renewables International website? 
Well, there's two projects that I have. It's renewablesinternational.net, which is more general in its focus, and the one that focuses directly on Germany is energytransition.de. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show, brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Anthony Daniel. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.